Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and today I go to the epicenter of modern day trading, Apex Clearing. Known as one of the most forward-thinking and innovative companies in this space, Apex has helped your favorite apps like M1 Finance and Stash, as well as broker-dealers, major banks, and RIAs support fractional trading. Today, I'm joined by Dustin Kirkland, Apex's Chief Product Officer, to learn about what really happens after you hit buy on that $300 order of Shopify stock. Though a little controversial, I'm a huge fan of fractional trading. I think it democratizes access to investing and certain stocks for small investors. And for personal finance geeks like myself, it allows extremely accurate dollar cost averaging and budgeting. In today's episode, we cover Dustin's untraditional path to fintech, the trade lifecycle and clearing in custody, the fascinating way Apex handles fractional trades, how crypto is disrupting equities trading, the best Austin barbecue, and a little shared love for the Grateful Dead at the end. I learned a lot in this one. Let's get started. Hi, Dustin, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're excited to have you as a guest today. Hey, thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. So where are you residing at the moment, and what have you been up to your last few months outside of Apex? Yeah, I'm coming to you from Austin, Texas. I've lived in Austin for a little over 20 years. Absolutely love this part of the world. I've had the privilege to travel quite a bit abroad and around the U.S., but always come back home to Austin. Having traveled so much, especially with my job, I've appreciated these nine months at home with my family, my two daughters, my dogs, and just you know the backyard. And I've taken advantage of that time to smoke a lot of meat. I'm uh, quite the barbecue uh, smoker. I like to homebrew beer, and we put in a pool this summer. So I spent some time in AutoCAD designing a pool and hired a set of contractors and managed the project adding a pool to the backyard. That's awesome. That's a pretty productive summer that I think you're having. <laughs> the weather's yeah. a lot better than where I've been. So to begin, can you just take our listeners through a bit of you know background about yourself and up until you got to Apex? Sure. So I graduated with a computer engineering degree from Texas A&M University. I was always into computer science programming and software through middle school, high school, college, gravitated toward writing software, especially open source software. And so when I came out of college in 2001, I joined IBM to work on Linux and open source. And that has that's been a passion of mine, nights and weekends, and professionally for about 20 years. I've spent almost all of that time in Austin. I did spend one year in Boston, Massachusetts, working at Red Hat. Red Hat at the time was a, a leading Linux vendor. IBM eventually acquired Red Hat just a year or two ago for one of the biggest software deals ever. Right, like 34 billion, right? Yeah, exactly. So about 15 years before that, I was IBM's engineer in residence at Red Hat. And so I, you know, IBM paid the paid the bills or wrote me the paycheck, but I carried an IBM badge and a Red Hat badge and spent a year sitting with the Red Hat engineering team working on Linux on the power PC, kind of the low-end IBM mainframes. Most of a decade at IBM, and then I left and joined actually one of Red Hat's competitors, a company called Canonical, makes a different version of Linux called Ubuntu Linux. And I spent most of 10 years there as an engineer and then an engineering manager. I actually left and did a startup. I was a CTO at a little startup built around some open source code I had co-authored and maintained 
basically encrypting data, an encrypted file system. And so as a technical advisor startup that eventually got around to funding, brought me on as the chief architect and CTO. And for the most part, we were encrypting healthcare databases in the 2011, 12, 13 timeframe. So helping companies meet their compliance requirements around putting data in the cloud mostly. I actually went back to Canonical around when that company exited, sold, had a nice little exit to Cloudera. I rejoined Canonical as the product manager for Ubuntu. So this is when I shifted into from an engineer to being a product manager. And I was a product manager and eventually a VP of product, ran product at Canonical for Ubuntu. A total of almost 10 years at Canonical. I then moved to Google to work on a different open source project, but sort of related to Linux, and that's called Kubernetes. And was a product manager for Google around Kubernetes. My expertise was on the enterprise data center and helping Google Cloud actually bridge the gap and run in computer data centers. And then joined Apex about a year and a half ago with a really interesting opportunity to lead the product team here as we disrupt fintech. So I have to say in, in your background, though, you know, extremely thorough and impressive, I didn't really hear much fintech. Did you have really any experience in trading, fractional trading, trade life cycles, clearing, settling, all this? No, none whatsoever, Ryan. This is almost a second career. And from one perspective, you know, some mentors gave me some advice that, hey, this is a risky move, Dustin, right? 20 years you've been in Linux, open source, cloud, and I've got a, a solid LinkedIn network of people I know around the industry. But boy, fintech, I was light on for sure. What I didn't know about fintech, I brought the product management expertise, which was really what Apex needed, and then surrounded me with people who were 20, 30-year Wall Street veterans. I read prolifically, and so I've probably read 50 books about the stock market, about trading, about the back-end infrastructure, the history. I'm kind of a sucker for a good corporate failings. I love to read about bankruptcies and that sort of thing. So, you know, I love those sorts of stories, but I just had to lean into learning about the industry and surround myself with people who taught me about it. A year and a half in, you know, I know that I will never have the 30 years of Wall Street brokerage experience that my colleagues have. So I know now better when to defer, hey, this isn't something I have the expertise on or when, hey, give me a week or two, let me get smart about that problem and when to hire and build a team around me that have that information, that expertise. So before jumping further, do you have any book recommendations for listeners? You said about 50, maybe one more fun, you know, nonfiction one, and then one that's more technical. Oh, I'm not going to recommend this book necessarily, but the Bible for the clearing and custody, which I know we're going to talk about next, is a book called After the Trade is Made by David M. Weiss. It's about seven or 800 pages of what actually happens after, you know, you decide you want to buy five bucks of Starbucks stock, which we're about to talk about fractional trading. What happens after you click the button in your mobile app that says $5 of Robinhood? And so this book goes through everything about that and all sorts of equities, options, mutual funds, you know. So it's a tough book, but that was the Bible that I had to sort of read before I got started here. Something more interesting, you know, I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell. I've read all of his of books. I'm a big fan of Nassim Taleb. I've read all of his books. Michael Lewis, of course, I've read all of his books. I mean, those were just, I kind of got started. Right. Like, it's table stakes at this point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I don't know that I've got anything. Investing wise, I really like, I really like A Random Walk Down Wall Street by Burton Malkiel. That's a good one if you just want some investing. I'm currently reading The Tao of Capital by Spitznagel. So that's what's on my list right now. 
I love it. All right. So let's get it into kind of the meat of the episode. So you work for Apex. What does Apex do and where does it come in in, in the trade life cycle? Yeah, so I work for Apex. Clearing and custody is what we do. To be honest, when the executive recruiter reached out to me, I'd never heard of Apex and I really didn't know what a custodian or clearing had done. I searched my Gmail to see if I knew anything about Apex. And it turns out maybe seven or eight years ago, I had written a check for essentially my entire life savings, my entire 401k at that point, and rolled over my 401k to Wealthfront. And in the process of rolling over my 401k to Wealthfront, I had my previous custodian, Fidelity, cut a check to Apex Clearing in Dallas, Texas. And I didn't know who that was. I remember being nervous about like, that's all of my money. That's all of it. <laughs> and I'm sending all of that to a company I've never heard of in Dallas and obviously worked itself out. Seven or eight years later, I had an opportunity to join that team and, and lead product management. So what's clearing in custody? Let's start with that check to Apex, that's the custodian part of clearing in custody, okay? So Wealthfront, Betterment, Robinhood, you know, these institutions don't hold your assets. They don't hold your money, typically, your cash. They don't hold your equity. That has to happen at a custodian. And there's only a couple of dozen custodians out there that are licensed and authorized by the SEC. It's a very specific business. It's a very specific set of licenses and charters of which Apex is one of them. And we like to think of ourselves, and I think are, have earned this reputation, of being the digital custodian. We really are digital first, digital everything from statements and confirms, transfers, cash movement, stock movement. Uh, we are as leaning forward thinking, as digital forward as it gets. So the custody part is about holding those assets safe on our books and records, maintaining those records. For the technologists in me, these are entries in a database. You know, once upon a time, it was a physical paper stock certificate. You know, you go all the way back to bearer certificates. They didn't even have your name on it. It was just whoever had the certificate owned that stock, right? And that eventually started having assignment. You know, it would have Ryan's name or Dustin's name or an institution's name on it. But those were physical stock certificates. And believe it or not, we still have a vault where we maintain a few physical stock certificates for customers that have held. I don't know, Exxon stock from the 1950s or something. And those certificates are still in the vault. Maybe I'm making the Exxon up, but there's a vault in Apex with some of that. Uh, but that's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of, of Apex. What we do all day, every day, millions of transactions cross our wires. We hold those assets safe, insured, SIPSI and insurance, and we facilitate the movement. So that's the custody part. Great. So now let's jump into the clearing part that you mentioned. Can you just talk about what that means for listeners who might not be familiar? Yeah. So clearing is the complicated and somewhat Byzantine process by which you buy or sell an equity. And by equity, I mean a stock, an option, a bond, a mutual fund, You know these very typical investment vehicles. We could even talk about cryptocurrency to some extent. We have a sister company called Apex Crypto same parent company, different registration with the bodies that processes crypto transactions as well. All of these, every time you buy or sell, there is a process called settlement that happens by which if you, Ryan, you're buying a stock, someone has to sell it to you. Uh, let's say I'm selling the stock. You and I, we don't know one another. You click in your app that you want to buy some Tesla stock. And I happen to have some Tesla stock that I want to sell. And maybe I've got an, a market order and I happen to press the button when you press the button. Unlikely, 
but possible, I might have a take profit order. You know, I want to sell as soon as Tesla hits a certain threshold and you want to buy and, and, you know, we meet in the middle. The meet in the middle is the clearing part or that has to happen once the trade has been agreed upon. But the state of the art today is something called T plus two settlement, meaning trade date plus two. It takes two days. You have two days to transfer the security. So I sold you some Tesla stock. You bought that Tesla stock. I want your money. You want my Tesla stock. There's two days and multiple steps along the way as it leaves my custodian and makes its way to, to your custodian, which in some cases happen to be the same custodian, even if we have different brokers, in which case, you know, there are some things we could and should do to accelerate that, but that's not the state of the art today. So the clearing process, Apex facilitates, in some cases, we have to front the cash for that transaction. And that cash and those assets take multiple steps along the way until they cross in the middle, and then they end up at your place and my place. And then so backing up just to one piece, you said you go out to the market to find kind of you know a counterpart to this transaction. Who are the markets that you typically go to? What does that mean? Yeah, so the market is basically a supply of buyers and sellers. Sometimes you want to sell. Maybe you want to sell that Tesla stock. So you, Ryan, need to find a buyer, right? It's not typical for you to find a person who happens to want to buy your exact share of stock. You just click sell in the app, and that app works with the clearing and an order management system to go to the market and find that buyer. One distinct difference that's interesting about the stock market, it's only open from certain hours of the day, Monday through Friday, and not holidays, right? That's very different than the crypto market, which we can talk a little bit about, but that's open 24-7, you know? But the stock market's only open certain hours of the day, during which time there's an entire business model built around called market makers. Market makers maintain a bit of a, a supply of stock that they offer for sale at a higher price. And they offer to buy at a lower price and you meet somewhere in the middle. So the thing that market makers do is they've actually, and over time, have really tightened that spread. So it's not a 50% delta or 100% delta in that case between the bid and the offer. They've actually tightened that range down. The high volume stocks like, like a Tesla or an Apple or a Google or Amazon or Microsoft, those spreads are pennies or fractions of a penny. And that's a good thing for both buyers and sellers. And the market makers make up the difference. They're only making pennies per transaction or per share, uh, but the volumes are so much higher. Got it. That was very clear. Thank you. And something that I've always been trying to understand, and I try to avoid reading a 700-page book to understand, and (laughs) that got the job done. It's it's merely taken me 18 months in the industry to be able to explain (laughs) in, I guess, high-level terms. There's a lot of technical detail down below, Mm -hmm. but you know. (laughs) High-level technical terms, that's a start. Got it. So now we'll kind of get into the guts of the episode, the fractional trade. I do this all the time. I buy a couple hundred bucks of Shopify and Amazon a week. So let's say I put in my order for $300 of Shopify stock. It's at $1,000 or so right now. What happens next? Yeah. So if you're using any one of our clients, let me be clear about this. Apex, we're a B2B. So we provide the plumbing and the platform to our clients. Our clients, we got a couple of hundred of them, but I'm talking about the fintech forward invent platforms like Ally, Invest, Stash, M1 Finance, SoFi, Webull, eToro. Um, we even power some of parts of Capital One, Goldman, Hancock, John Hancock, where they've acquired 
fintech startups and integrated that into their platform capabilities. So you, Ryan, you don't interface with Apex. You interface with, I'll use Stash here as an example. You're on your Stash app. You decide you want to buy $300 of Shopify, which is less than one share. Okay. You click that button and you go through your app. That app, if they're using Apex on our end, if they're using our fractional real-time API, in real time, Apex goes to the market. This assumes the market's open. We go to the market and we round up to the next higher share. So in that case, it's one, right? But it could have easily have been, you want to buy three and a half shares. We go and we buy four, okay? We allocate to you, to Ryan's account, which sits on Apex's books and records. We allocate you your fractional ownership of that share. So a third of a share, if you bought $300, three and a half shares if you bought $3,500, okay? And then we take onto our books, onto our inventory, the extra half share, okay? And we maintain, we've got a small trading desk, uh, meaning a, a handful of brokers who manage an Apex inventory, uh, several thousand stock symbols that we might have our own fractional ownership of. And when those hit certain thresholds or hit certain levels, we go back to the market and we sell them off right? We're not an investment firm. Peak6, our parent company, has a proprietary trading platform. That's not Apex, though. So we maintain a book of, it's less than a million dollars, it's a couple of hundred thousand dollars of a whole bunch of fractions, maybe 6,000 different symbols that we might have at any given time. And when one of those hits a certain threshold, we trade it out. We trade out of that position. And so we maintain a little, it's very small on our end of year, you know, our balance sheet. It's not insignificant, but it's also not, we're not a market maker per se. So that's not how we're making money, but that's the super simple explanation of how we do that. Now you might ask, if we have a half a share, could we just sell you that half of a share? We don't do that today. That would be considered proprietary trading. It's a form of a market maker or a dark pool, which is a way of selling your own inventory. That's not how we solve the problem today, but we could. How we solve it today is exactly how I described it. We go to the market for the rounded up and then allocate you the rest. So can a fractional share like truly exist or is everything always in whole shares and then you have to break it down into, you know, 30% for me, 70%? Well, yes. Yeah, so as it actually exists, it's whole shares. I mean, think, go back to how those shares came into existence, right? Some mm -hmm. company did an IPO, an initial public offering or a follow-on uh, public offering. And someone somewhere, as Shopify was your example, we could probably Google Shopify's IPO a couple of years back and figure out how many millions or billions of dollars they raised. But they right. offered some X number of shares. I'm going to make it up and say 36 million shares were offered on a particular date for a particular mm -hmm. price. That 36 million shares, that's a fixed number. It's a fixed supply. They can offer more, but that dilutes the whole this is all getting right to the heart of the, you know, the after now, the trade is made. You, right. you got to understand this to understand what we're dealing with, right? But it's a pizza that was sliced 36 million ways. Everybody gets, you know, however many slices of that pizza, but there's no more pizza to go around if that's the size of the pie. Now we sub with fractional shares, we sub allocate portions of that, but we didn't invent shares. We didn't, someone else has the rest of that share. So yeah, so I think that's important to understand. Okay, and then you hold these pieces of stuff, of 6,000 different tickers on your books, and it never goes above like six, $700,000. It's that efficient and that liquid to say? 
I have to do a little research to find out what the exact number is, but it's yeah. it's but on it's the order of fifty million. No, 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 million. it's not. It's yeah. not. Now to run a a market maker, a dark pool, or something like that, yes, you've got to run much bigger balance sheets. But that's not what we need to do to run a pretty efficient fractional trading API and trade out of those positions as necessary. You know, we're not investing. We're happy for you to invest in in that for the long term and. You know, as a personal investor, I, I you know buy and sell shares, but that's not Apex's business. Our business is to provide the plumbing, and we really do describe ourselves as plumbers. So, you know, we're just talking about Shopify here, a super high growth stock, but it seems investors are getting hungrier for even higher yield, which they're getting in crypto. So, let's unpack this more. How is crypto trading evolving, and how is it disrupting equities trading from the back end? There's been you know, just such a flurry of really retail investor-driven activity more than from the institutional side, at least at the start. It's 24-7 and extremely international. I, I mentioned one already. Crypto is already pushing the envelope on 24-7 trading. You know, Markets close. And I'm here in Austin, Texas, central time zone. So 8.30 a.m. market opens, 3 p.m. market closes, after which I mean, there's a little bit of after hours trading, but it's a weird esoteric market with lots of swings and volatility. If you want to make a trade, you got to wait till the next day or after the weekend or after the holidays are over or in the the case of some sort of calamity like 9-11 or the hurricane Sandy or something like that. Markets shut down and you you can't move money. You can't sell out of positions. You can't buy into opportunities, right? And so that's a place where crypto is different. You know, it runs basically 24 by 7, nights, weekends, holidays, round the world, round the clock. I think that's going to, in some ways, push some equities trading to evolve. I don't know that necessarily we need to or will get to full 24-7 trading, but I think we will see some innovation around either dark pools or market makers opening up trading in certain cases, you know, maybe for certain symbols, high volume symbols, again, the Apples and Teslas and Googles and Amazons and Microsofts, you know, the things that just move constantly or or easy to move constantly, less so for the low volume symbols, pick an esoteric symbol that, you know, trades a few hundred lots a day, might not need to have that overnight market maker type supply to trade in and out of. I think we'll see some of that. We talked about fractional shares there's not really a concept of fractional options trading yet. You know, I think there'll be some innovation there. Maybe notional is the better way to think of it. Options trading. I want to bet $100 that XYZ is going to go down or up tomorrow, right? Today, it takes a really complicated strategy typically to make that work. And a fair amount of capital, especially for high dollar, high value symbols to make that something like that work. You know, I think we're already at a point where all digital is fairly table stakes, but I think everything being real time is going to be the important thing. There's still a lot of processes around our industry, fintech in general, that involves overnight batch processes. You would be, your listeners would be astounded to understand how many trillions of dollars get moved on a daily basis by FTPing comma separated value CSV files around. Uh, Literally, ledgers of position movements get FTP'd from one bank to another or from us to someone else that moves trillions of dollars on a daily basis. And coming from my world, I'll step back, coming from my world, 
cloud computing, open source, Google, IBM, Ubuntu. It is, I said Byzantine earlier, that is absolutely Byzantine to me. That's how money moves. And that's very different in the crypto world, right? Crypto is a ledger, a publicly and distributed ledger. And you know, there's a lot to be said about some of the scalability problems that Bitcoin and Ethereum may have going forward. But for the most part, those transactions are instant or near instant, certainly closer than the ACH that moves your cash from your Wells Fargo account to your Morgan Stanley brokerage account. And then another question on crypto, when did Apex start its crypto servicing platform? Yeah, a couple of years ago. So to be clear, Apex Crypto, it's a separate entity under Peak6. Peak6 is the parent company that owns Apex. And I can tell you a little bit about Peak6 if you or your listeners are interested. Apex Crypto has been around for a little over two years. It's basically a crypto exchange. So we facilitate, again, it's B2B. We empower our customers to offer buying and selling cryptocurrencies again, in real time, using basically the same APIs, application programming interfaces, that those platforms, their coders, write their code to and integrate to. Weeble is a client of ours on the uh, stock and options side of things. They've just gone live in the last month on crypto trading, and it's an outstanding platform. I'm a Weeble client myself. I use Weeble for some of my trading and crypto trading. Weeble is powered by Apex on the equities side of things and Apex Crypto on the crypto side of things. So I think my head is filled with trade flows now. This has been really informative, Dustin. One thing of note for our listeners that I kind of want to wrap up with is that you've actually been working from home since about 2012. Can you talk about how you navigated this as many of us are moving toward majority work from home now? You know, How did you keep yourself relevant, navigate office politics and such a heavy FaceTime culture? I mean, nearly 10 years ago when Almost no one was really working from home. That's a great question. So it was actually 2008. And the way that it worked was because the company, Canonical, was founded on that principle from day one. So the company was founded in 2004, believe it or not, by a, a South African billionaire named Mark Shuttleworth, who built this company from people on the principle. His first 25 hires were in 20 different countries. It was, it was sort of all, all over the place. I joined in 08, which was still relatively early to the journey. Ubuntu started as a desktop operating system. I joined the team that built the first Ubuntu server operating system. It helped that everyone, everyone was in that same boat. Everyone worked from home. So we had, we had far more understanding and sympathy for one another. We're covering time zones uh, around the entire world. You know, The tools and technology back then was a little different. There was no Slack. We used a, a predecessor to Slack called IRC, Internet Relay Chat, which of course still exists. But it was, you know, everything that we did all day, every day was sitting on what amounted to Slack channels, except they were called chat channels. We used conference calling a lot, and we used a technology, a push technology for some of the early sort of voiceover IP. And then the game breaker for us was Google Docs and Google Hangouts, honestly. That came around, I think we adopted around 2010. And that's where like the turbo chargers turned on. We were able to simultaneously edit documents, you know, slides, spreadsheets in the same browser tab. We shifted from lots of conference calls to video chats. That really turned the corner. Now that's only half of it, Ryan. The other half was 
what we saved on real estate and facilities and like think about everything that goes into renting a space. Unbelievable. Such a cash windfall. Yeah. And like we work helps in that you can just rent as much space as, as you need, I guess. But we didn't even have that, right? So we sent people laptops and said, here, get to work. And what we didn't pay was pay for primo space downtown, electricity, water, network, Friday donuts, like you name it, like all of that stuff, like put all that into a fund. And we spent that on travel. And then we were efficient with travel. It was in the early days, at least it was room sharing, hotels and economy Uh flights. Now we graduated a little bit from there. But we spent a lot of time face-to-face and there's no substitute for the face-to-face time. We call them sprints, different than, than the agile term sprint. But a sprint for us was getting five to 50 people to 100 people working out of either someone's house. I hosted them at my house a number of times. Four or five people would come to my house for a week and we'd work. We'd work out of a hotel conference room or hotel suite. Um, or we'd book out the hotel ballroom and, and have 100 people working together. We would do that basically four times per year. Some big, some small, some focused, some strategic. There was no substitute for that. And here's the trick about working out of a hotel for a week. You actually spend, I think I spent more quality time with my colleagues there than I ever did in an office environment in that we worked long days, 10, 12 hour days. But we went to dinner at night and we went to karaoke after dinner. You know, we got up and had breakfast in the morning. It was almost like it's like those friends you made at camp, right? Which were different than the friends you made in school or the friends you made in college, which were different than the friends you made in high school, right? That was part and parcel to what we did. And honestly, the thing I'm looking most forward to after the pandemic is getting my team, my org back together again. We've done as much as we can over Zoom. But there's just no substitute for the after hours, the hallway after hours chat. Absolutely. So I think that's a perfect place to end. But before we wrap up, you've entered the final part of the episode, which is the rapid fire round. So we've got about Uh seven, eight questions, max five to 10 seconds answer each. Are you ready? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) All right. Swig of coffee. Let's go. Here we go. So accomplishment or milestone since starting at Apex that you're most proud of? Oh, developing my team, putting product management processes in place and getting seeing the team lean into that. If you hadn't been working at Apex, what do you think you'd be doing for a living right now? Oh, you know, I want to retire at some point and run a smokehouse brewery. I want to specialize in smoked meats oh, and that. delectable sour beer. <laughs> That's great. Sour beer? Yes. Oh, you kind of lost me there. Oh, <laughs> not a sour beer guy. All right. Well, so one day, one day. So how about fintech or trading hero? Well, I've mentioned two authors. I love reading Michael Lewis. His books are so engaging. And then I really like Burton Malkiel's approach to investing. That's great. All right. This is tough for you because you have 12 years now to draw on. Funniest work from home experience so far. Oh my goodness. It wasn't at my expense, but the obvious one is, you know, that... <laughs> the newscast from a couple of years ago that now the entire world can empathize with in Korea, where the newscaster was kind of given his take and his, his wife is trying to check kid out of the background. I mean, that was, that was me all the time. Oh yeah. I forgot about that video. <laughs> but when that happened, it's like, yes, that's it. This guy made this like common for everyone. I mean, that was a daily occurrence for me with two right. small kids, but now everyone understands it, you know, and everyone empathizes with it. Got it. So how about salt lick overrated or underrated? 
hate to say it, overrated. In all honesty, my wife and I had our rehearsal dinner the night before our wedding at the Salt Lake. No way. We did rent it out the back room uh, in 2006. Amazing. But the number of Austin barbecue establishments better than the Salt Lake, there's a bunch. With all due respect, it's a wonderful experience. You drive out to the hill country. The food's good. It's just if you really want pure barbecue, there's better barbecue in Austin. Rehearsal dinner at Salt Lake is about as Austin Homer towny as I've ever heard. <laughs> That's incredible. All right. So if it's not there, what's your top barbecue or smoked meat spot and best bar in Austin? Don't say something on Dirty Six. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, Franklin's is legendary. Absolutely legendary. I've read Aaron Franklin's books. I've taken his masterclass. I've adapted his style using an offset smoker to my style using a, a Kamado style smoker. And so you can't go wrong with Franklin's. I like a little hole in the wall out here by my house called BK Barbecue. It's a trailer on the side of the road. They've been doing it since 1997. I love some BK's barbecue and no one's going to tell me any different. <laughs> I love that place already. It sounds great. All right. Now, last question. I did see, I think it was on Twitter that you're a Grateful Dead fan. Oh, Deadhead myself. What's the favorite, right. favorite Grateful Dead album, song, show, and member? Um, American Beauty, man. I like if you can put an album on play in my coffin at the end of it all, put American <laughs> Beauty on loop. Everyone and, cries during Broke Down Palace. Oh Ripple. my God. Just let it go. Favorite song Ripple on that is just perfection, absolute perfection. Mm-hmm. You know, I never got to see The Grateful Dead with Jerry. I, I was 15 and 95 when he died, which was a little bit before my parents were letting me go to, uh, right. to to things like Grateful Dead concerts. I've seen The Dead and Rat Dog and stuff a few times. I saw Rat Dog in Austin City Limits in the studio, maybe 2002. It was amazing. The other one would be The Dead played Willie Nelson's Picnic out here with Willie Nelson and Neil Young on stage maybe 2005 or six or so that one was a hell of a lot of fun too that's awesome and then last one who's the favorite member of the band tough one. Oh, it is i like phil i mean he's just such a nerd and i'm a nerd <laughs> and it's really hard to, is. it's hard to pick but like just seeing phil pour his heart and soul his like little endearing nerdy heart and soul into that music it's it's inspiring to me i, I love a good right brain left brain exercise myself i like to play a little bit of music when i'm done with work mm-hmm. and it's a it just it frees up the other half of your brain so yeah it fills a man after my heart great so i think we'll wrap up there for the maybe three other listeners who know anything about the grateful dead <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i love the surprise at the end i, I <laughs> you know we build a, a little bit of rapport and i kind of knew we were going to talk about fintech and fractional trading what i didn't know is we were going to talk about smoked meat and the grateful dead so that's a lot of fun ryan to a life's greatest pleasures if you ask me um so i think that's a great place to stop dustin thank you for coming on the show today this was a great episode with a lot of content maybe the most i've learned in an episode to date so i want to thank you for coming on you bet absolutely thanks for having me thank you for listening to today's episode of the wharton fintech podcast If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. 
I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauck.